0: Four Corners podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to the next episode of the Four Corners podcast with your host Klisman Marathi and on this episode we have a very interesting guest and something and a topic which we'll be discussing today which I've been dying to sit down with this guest for and uh, today's guest is Benedikt Franca, the CEO of the Munich Security Conference and we're here today to talk all things uh, geopolitics and how that interplays and interrelates with the world of investing. And we'll be tackling some issues which have been on the news recently, but in a very interesting way that Mr. Frank is very qualified to speak about. So I'd like to welcome Mr. Frank to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Osman.
0: Wonderful. So Benedict, you are an academic in your own right as well. You know, you've completed a a master's from John Hopkins, a a PhD from Cambridge and a postdoc in from Oxford, uh, tackling both of the top universities in the UK. So you are an academic of international relations, of, of politics in your own right. When you transitioned over into, uh, quote unquote, the sort of real world, I don't really like that phrase, but it's a phrase that has been used quite often when you compare academia to more hardcore, uh, you know, practical political issues. What have you seen as being the most surprising thing that uh, maybe you weren't prepared for in your academic studies when it came time to engaging with, uh, with leaders internationally and regionally in Germany as well? Are, are there any things that you can say that were different from your studies or that surprised you when you came into the world of uh, politics?
1: Yeah, that's a good question to start on. I could talk for hours and hours about this. Um, everything was different than I'd expected. You know, I'd learned all these theories and relationships. And when you when you sort of get into the real world, you quickly realize that yes, theories are pretty good at describing things post-fact, but they're not very good at um, prescribing or helping you to make sense um, pre-fact out of things. So, you know, I, I started uh, with, with Kofi Annan Um, and and i worked as a as an assistant for him and obviously that was a great place to start to see all the intricacies of of international relations and and politics and the, the sort of the one key takeaway that i quickly learned was that it's personal interests that motivate people to do the right but also the wrong things and when i then you know left the Kofi the universe so to say and joined the, the CSU which is the, the ruling party in, in Bavaria and I, I worked on the election campaign for the, the federal the state and the, and the local elections in, in 2011 2012 and 2013 and um, I realized that even harder that it's politics is emotional politics is personal and everything else flows from the bottom to the top and not the other way around and um, you know German foreign policy sometimes can be explained by looking at some, you know, communal conflicts in southern Bavaria and the way that politicians need to deal with that. And that really um, took a long time to digest. and I'm not entirely sure that I have fully digested it. But yeah, all politics is local and all politics is personal, as I think something that, that's as true today as it was in, uh, in
0: ancient Greece. I can imagine so because even from my experience although i didn't go through the steep academic training as you have i finished with a masters was my latest degree at ucl in london and i've noticed that even when the civil servants came in to talk about potential careers into the future i was very interested to see what kind of academic theories and academics do they rely on for their for their knowledge of how to behave in the in the uh, in the sort of uh, re, uh, realist world of, of uh, international relations, and I was surprised to hear that they don't really use a lot of theory when it comes time to decisions. Mostly based on on practice and based on on past history of how nations have inter, inter, interacted with each other, and they use that as a basis for moving forward. So, in your role as um, as CEO of the Munich Security Conference and actually being such a hub for leaders to come and discuss interesting issues, what do you think? Um, are the things that worry them the most or keep them up at night when it comes time to uh, to, to dealing with these very complex and long-term issues of international relations because naturally uh, each leader has their own point of view on the world and each election cycle determines what position a nation takes depending on what a leader is in charge and even if they keep the same position over the the five years or so that they're there. Are there any themes that you believe um, are 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 more important than we realize to these leaders when it comes time to dealing with this complex world that we live in today?
1: Yes, um, it's almost like an advertising block for us because, in fact, we do have two formats. One is called, uh, what keeps you up at night? And one is called, nightmare pictures. What's your worst nightmare? And, and sort of, you know, uh, what makes you stay up at night? Um, and, you know, we get heads of international um, organizations or the directors of national intelligence agencies or leading politicians to, to share their worries and nightmares with us. And I think they, you know, they can be clustered. Um, there are short-term worries. I mean, obviously, you know, the pandemic keeps a lot of our leaders up at night these days. Uh, there are there are long-term worries that are more abstract, climate change, you know, the Change of the, the economic system, world trade, you know, things that are sort of, yes, we all know they're a problem, but they're a little more abstract and every leader, him or herself, doesn't feel in control and feels like a pawn in a, in a big chess game. And then there are the problems in between, the more specific um, problems where leaders have a feeling of being in control, at least partly. And, and those are the most interesting ones. Um, and obviously, you know, the terrorism keeps up some of the intelligence guys. But what I found recently when we do these things is it's it's technology. It's the enormous speed of innovation juxtaposed with t- the very slow um, development of bureaucratic structures and, and political decision making processes and and problems like 5G, you know, let's, you know, there are a lot of leaders that, that I think are deeply worried that with 6G, 7G and 8G, we will run into very similar problems as we did with 5G because as technology and technological change accelerates, uh, our systems aren't keeping up. And so they're worried that they will run into similar problems with quantum computing. Um, with with semiconductors and things that we've talked about in, in the past and that they personally could have done more to adjust the system to deal with these things. And we at the Munich Security Conference, we've just set up a, a security innovation board, which, by the way, will have its inaugural meeting uh, today, Friday the 23rd. And um, we, we are convinced that even though there are a million boards out there already, um, there, there is a space for clever people to come together and look at the next gray rhinos out there. I know that you've done a podcast on, on black swans and black swans are obviously a super exciting concept, but I think gray rhinos are an even more exciting concept. because. Me,
0: what is a gray rhino? That sounds quite interesting as a topic. A
1: gray rhino is a problem with a high probability, high impact yet still neglected. So you see this gray rhino in the, in the sort of you know, long distance and you think, oh, that's a nice rhino. And then it comes closer and you say, oh, this is a nice rhino. And then suddenly it's just too close. It'll just run you over. Um, gray, gray rhinos, there are lots of gray rhinos out there. You know, a pandemic is a classical gray rhino. We have known for years and years, in fact, for centuries that um, pandemics come and go. And that there's a real risk that at some stage in our globalized world, uh, a pandemic will uh, will arrive that we're not fully prepared to deal with. And you know, having had this knowledge and having seen things like Ebola in the recent past, you know, this is not uh, the Spanish flu 100 years ago. This is Ebola five years ago, or SARS, or all the other things that we've seen. We still were hopefully unprepared, and hence, I, I think it's not a black swan. You know, it didn't come out of nothing. It wasn't not expected. It it was just ignored or in in the wrong priority level for for many people. And and hence, the the gray rhinos out there are the ones that we should really be paying attention to. We're not doing that enough. And, And the MSC believes that in areas like defense innovation, ICT innovation, energy innovation, there are positive gray rhinos but also some negative gray rhinos that we need to, you know, bring to policymakers attention over and over and over again. Um, Because, you know, saying it once just doesn't work. You need to make sure that they can't hear it anymore and that they realize it's important. A bit like cybersecurity, you know, was ignored at the beginning and then slowly everyone woke up and now it's in everyone's mouth, but still many things aren't uh, aren't changing or aren't adapted as quickly as they should be. So that, to get back to your question, is I think what keeps most leaders awake, namely this, this inability to keep pace with developments, both in the technological
0: world and then obviously in the real world as well. Yeah. I think this idea of being one step ahead and then two steps back when something go, go, goes wrong is it's a pandemic within itself in the structures of government because they are very slow to respond to many different things and you need to spend a lot of effort to get their attention on things if it isn't right there in their part if it's not an immediate threat let's say like terrorism for example which is a fit you can see it more physically as opposed to cyber which is much more latent which affects you but not in such a critical visual way that will make uh, your populace stand up and demand change they tend to put it in the back of their minds you're right in saying that and um, from our work with different types of governments we've noticed that it's 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 a bit sad to say but if you can link it back to how you can how this issue can um can improve the standing of the politician, meaning if, if, you say, if you tackle this issue in this way, then it has a chance for you to be seen in a better light, tends to get their attention more so than not, uh, which is a problem not only in Western countries, but globally, wherever you, you have a democratic system, you have these incentives, these micro-incentives that lead leaders or politicians in general to, to go after an issue if, it's, if it makes them look good in a specific light. But when, when things like technology or transformative technology... Come into the the the, the, the fray as uh, you guys work on as well. Issues like trust become a big thing, and also the 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 speed of change, like five G, as you mentioned, becomes a big big issue for them. So, from your experience, seeing how these leaders work together in the in the world of of, uh, of uh, government, and also in the world of industry, and and the interplay between those two, do you think the biggest issue is the fact that you know politicians aren't as uh, educated to the point where they understand these issues so deeply and the world of technology is moving faster for them because they don't have that comprehension um, and if that is the case what, what, what can we do perhaps as a civil society or as, uh, as sort of intermediaries like you are and like we are to, to help that process go faster and what are the biggest issues in tech because trust is, is, is a big one and also the rate of change is a big one too. So have you got any thoughts on that, uh, on, the, on those issues? I know there's a lot of questions packed into one, but I'm sure you can handle it. You know,
1: I, I'll try to pack many answers <laughs> into one. And um, yeah, you know, let's go back to the the, the the first question that you asked right at the beginning uh, about the nature of politics. Here too, I think you're absolutely right. If, if if one agrees with the assumption that all politics is personal, at the end of the day, it's personal motivation and personal incentives Uh, that decide whether people do the right or the wrong thing or anything at all and and so I think organizations like ours, like the Munich Security Conference, really have a role to play in hammering points home that, you know, it's an an interest uh, in a leader's personal interest, in a nation's general interest to do X, Y, and Z and I, you know, I, I can run through millions of examples if you want me to, but my feeling is that The the world of politics is becoming, you know, more complex by the second. And we don't necessarily, you know, give our politicians credit for that or support them optimally in navigating these, you know, constantly changing and increasing complexities. And hence, there is some kind of a, a translation function for organizations like ours. You know, bring brilliant techies and brilliant nerds and brilliant investors um together with powerful leaders is good and is better than nothing but what is really important is to translate between these two worlds to tell one side what is needed and possible and the other what's realistic and politically uh, astute. And I, I think that needs to be done more and we' we'll, we we'll try that. We haven't figured out you know um, all, possible details of how to do this best but we're getting better by by the minute and you know in addition to this this translation function i think there is some for an organization like ours there is a foresight function so you know what are topics that will be important in three years and how do we make sure that leaders get that they are important in three years and to, to to start make plans Leaders, and I'm, you know, I'm talking about the prime ministers and, and presidents of this world. So our customers in quotation mark, our our audience, um, they have so many issues to deal with, and so many problems, and also so many possible solutions to choose from. That I think yet another function for an organization like ours is to slim down the decision matrix to make it easier to find, you know, wh- what are sensible solutions and what are, you know, maybe attractive solutions, but solutions that aren't, you know, realistic or uh, can't be implemented in the time that we need them uh, by, you know, that there are, there are lots and lots of long-term issues now in, in, in politics. And uh, you've mentioned election cycles. I, I have a feeling that people do get the fact that you get retroactive credit um, in politics too and people care about their place in history books and so i think what you need to tell people you know this this decision may not help you win the next election but it will help you win a really good place in the next history book and um, it will you know your fame and glory will follow and it will not follow in two years but i'll follow in five ten 15 years, and I think that's something, that's not our role at the Munich Security Conference, but that is something that civil society, and, and, and uh, in particular academia, can really help with. People, giving people credit for difficult decisions they've taken in the distant past that play out positively in the present. And you know, we should really look at which countries are doing well in the pandemic, and what people have done in the past to prepare these countries better than others, Singapore, you know, we've laughed at Singapore for years because everyone ran around with masks long before we knew that masks existed. And, you know, we should really give them credit for having thought ahead and having prepared a country. Now they're obviously doing quite well. So yeah, giving credit is a, is a hugely important uh, task for, for civil society. Mm-hmm.
0: Does that become more difficult, though, when when you have, in the first place, big disagreements between the populace and the governments as to how to move forward with big issues like COVID? I know topics like the COVID passport is very contentious in many parts of the world, and also between leaders of different countries. So you have two types of relationships, don't you? You have the, the people and their politicians, and you have politicians and their and other politicians in other, in other countries. And your concept of uh, beyond westlessness, the idea that, um, you know, the historic uh, unions of Western democracy are somehow fraying or they're becoming less important as other nations become more powerful, which is a concept that we have as well in in a different form. Um, Does this sense of cooperation uh, become more difficult, especially with an organization like the MSC, when you have historical powers? being quite close together and for many different reasons their uh, opinion on different international matters becomes frayed and non-unified, and then bringing them together at the negotiating table becomes even more important because they are still very important leaders. I use the example of the World Trade Organization. We had a representative uh, of the World Trade Organization on our podcast recently this year and he made it very clear that the importance of bodies like this becomes even more important as nations become more powerful across the world. So that the U.S. is losing power in in some way, but more nations are developing more power, which is evening out the playing field, or at least making these smaller nations, now that are becoming more powerful, have a much bigger voice in world affairs. How does this sense of geopolitical turmoil play out, in your opinion, over the the next uh, 15, 20 years? And it's difficult to give predictions, I'm sure, but are there any themes that you see will continue to develop as time passes yeah
1: you know an easy question right there uh, the the concept of westlessness was coined by by the Munich security conference last year to describe a world that was becoming less western in mm-hmm. a west that was itself becoming less western mm-hmm. and i think you know even though we we see president biden trying really hard and giving his best Um, we in Europe um, are are living up to this idea of westlessness, unfortunately. Hmm. We, you know, we've gracefully uh, acknowledged that uh, President Biden has brought the US back into the WHO and back into the Paris Climate Agreement. But still, within Europe, we still haven't figured out things like Nord Stream 2 or the 2% debate on, you know, our contribution to defense. We are Mm. totally fragmented when it comes to our opinion towards Russia or China. We aren't the ally to the United States that we should and that we could be. And I think that brings a lot of problems with it. And the question now is, I think we had a, a fork in the road in a way. The next 15 years will play out totally different if we as Europe, you know, as one half of the West or the Transatlantic Alliance don't get our act together. And formulate yeah. clear positions on China, Russia, and, and some key themes, uh, you know, beginning with migration and climate change, uh, health security. There's so many out there. Um, that, that that's one side. You know, if we get our act together, um, I think the next ten to fifteen years will become a success story for the West, where we make multilateralism fit for purpose again, where we you know stamp our values on on, on global development, which I think is is the right thing to do, or we go down the other fork, uh, the other road. Um, And that is one where we remain fragmented as Europe, where we will see even less um, supranational um, benefits for people and, and more a return to the nation state. I mean, we've seen it, you know, with, with Brexit and vaccinations for, for Europeans and pro Europeans, Europhiles like me, this is a drama. In, in a way, the, the, the Brits, whom I love dearly, feel vindicated in having left the European Union because the European Union has messed it up. Um BRICS have left it to the nation state, they gained back control, and yes, they are world champions in vaccinations, whereas the Europeans tried to be fair and nice to each other and sort of balanced and, and good, and they've really, really, really been punched in the nose and they've, they've lost um, in the race to, to herd immunization um, to, to the UK. And I think if we see more of that, People on the street becoming convinced that the European project is doomed because it can't deliver clear benefits to everyone. And if Europe remains bad at communicating its enormous benefits to everyone, and if we can't get our act together on on foreign security policy issues and on our stand towards Russia and, and China... I think we're in big trouble down the road, and I think that is that is really something that that investors need to understand, that you know there there is no guarantee uh, that things will become better in the next couple of years. Yes, Joe Biden was a great you know start into the year. Um, we named our uh, our current events all mm-hmm. beyond, beyond westlessness. Um, you know, are we? Are we gaining background uh, as the West? And and will we find a concept that maybe works better than the West? Because there's this geographic connotation that's difficult um, to describe this group of countries that really wants to, you know, ensure that the world becomes more liberal, becomes freer, becomes more prosperous, um, or... Uh, will we see fragmentation Mm -hmm. and a Russian and a Chinese leadership that are fully prepared to make the most out of this fragmented opposition in many ways. And if I were an investor, I would really try to understand, uh, you know, the choices ahead and don't ignore geopolitics. And I, I know that a lot of investors have have realized the importance of geopolitics for their business Uh, but i don't think it's all of them yet and i i don't think it may even be the majority so we have as the munich security conference we've Mm -hmm. begun to reach out to investors uh, and and tell them you know it really makes a difference where you put your money and on what assumptions you put your money into technologies and into service industries and into you know old style industries as well so yeah we could go on and on forever and ever about this topic but i i'm relatively convinced that the the next two years will be the ones that decide on on where we will be in 15 years and that sounds a little philosophical but i hope you buy it nonetheless
0: yeah, well, hopefully we'll have a chance to speak in 15 years' time and I'll play this podcast back to you to see how correct you were. <laughs> but I think you're right in saying that investors, and especially from our experience, investors really, they have an awareness of geopolitics because it's in their faces a lot of the time when they read the newspapers. But unfortunately for a lot of them, that we've spoken to anyway, it stops there. It stops them reading the papers and feeling, well, that's enough for, for, me, for me to know. And they can make decisions off the back of just reading an article or two, which is really ill-prepared because you wouldn't do the same thing if you were in, in any other industry. You couldn't really say when it comes time to investing in a company, oh, I read an article, therefore I'm going to invest. Why would you do the same thing with such such latent importance? Or as like a gray rhino, as you mentioned, like a decision that that, that that a government makes could have a big impact on your portfolio. Why would you rely on a few articles here and there or on TV news stories? Although I, I do appear on TV quite, uh, quite often, I wouldn't uh, say rely on just a three minute segment to make your decision at all because that's not the smart way to go about it. Um but there is that sense of well, it's there, it's important, I guess, but we invest in the West or in more established uh, markets, therefore uh, we know it's quite um it's quite stable. but as you're right in mentioning, Europe is going through I think an identity crisis where you have the west the western western nations i e you know uh the founders of the modern day uh, European Union, uh, having one set of uh perspectives on these big issues and the former eastern bloc nations or nations within the balkans who now want to also come into the eu having a whole different set of uh, perspectives and also big geopolitical games played are playing in the baltics and the balkans right now with china russia and europe and america together so europe is becoming again a focal point of geopolitics uh, post world war ii again we're going through a different cycle of that i think that one of the last questions i think i'd like to ask you is what kinds of things frustrate you the most when you do speak to your audience and what do you hope they would be able to grasp better than what they have now because naturally being in germany being in the heart of europe i guess it's very important for for germany as well to have a stable europe because um no one wants an unstable Europe, because that can mean a whole host of uh, unintended and intended consequences of that From your experience, are your worries still the same as they were maybe even 10 years ago? Or have they changed in their scope or in their importance as time has passed?
1: What frustrates me the most is when hierarchy comes into the game. When a prime minister doesn't want to talk to a minister because he's a prime minister. Um, And I've unfortunately had to witness that several times, even within Europe. Um, and, you know, people insisting on on roles and job profiles and and hierarchies uh, rather than on the issue at hand and and graspable solutions, you know, there are so many great leaders and so many great politicians out there, and I'll make my point again, I think we underestimate what is needed uh, in in politics these days and, and how lucky we are to have some of these people there, however you know, I meet a lot of bad leaders too. And what really frustrates me is how they got into that position in the first place and how they keep themselves and their cronies in in these positions, even though you realize after a second that what they do is not the best for their organization or their country. And there is very little that I can do, Um, but it's just deeply frustrating. And I think sometimes... And I, I mentioned the, the the lack of communication ability of the European Union, but the same is true for some some national leaders that you know could be so much better at communicating their own um, success stories, and you know being open about the problems and troubles they face. If I've realized anything in the last couple of years is that you, if you admit that there are challenges, if you admit that there are issues, and if you don't pretend that everything is great and and working out just fine, and as you had always planned it, um, populations understand, and populations appreciate, and people want to be helpful. And so, you know, leaders pretending it's all great, and not making the most out of the brilliance around them to solve a problem is what frustrates me most. And I think there has been pretty consistent, a consistent
0: frustration over the last 10 years. And I'm afraid it will be a pretty consistent frustration
1: <laughs> in the next years to come.
0: Yeah, I think polit- politicians change, but the nature of politics remains the same since the beginning. So um, that is very true. Benedict, we can sit and speak about these issues, I think, for a long, long time. But for the sake of time or for the sake of the, uh, the attention of our listeners, I think we'll wrap it up here. If anyone wants to get into contact with you, Benedict, be they an investor, be they a potential sponsor, be they just a concerned citizen who wants to learn more about what you're doing at the MSC, what's the best way for them to get into contact with you or your team? Would it be Twitter, LinkedIn, um, the website, what kinds of channels have they got to get in contact with you directly?
1: All of the above. Uh, we are an incredibly open organization, uh, good ideas, critique, sponsorships, you know, all of it is welcome. Um, we... We, we were a small team a couple of years ago. We've grown quickly over the last couple of years. So we may actually have the capacities to answer some of your questions in a reasonable amount of time. Thanks for having me. Um, it was fun. Let's do it again.
0: Thank you so much. So that is uh, Benedict Franke, CEO of the Munich Security Conference. Thank you so much, Benedict.
1: Thanks for having me.